Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to another podcast episode. I hope that you've been well since the last one and that the new year is treating you well. Well, it's not as new as it was in January, but you know, it's still a new year. I hope it's treating you well. Today, my guest on the podcast is Moki Makura, who is the executive director of Africa No Filter, a really interesting organization that does a lot of dynamic work in shifting narratives about Africa through different media and ways of storytelling that Africans are making use of to challenge reductive narratives about the continent and other issues. All right, I will leave it to Moki to take it away and I'll catch you on the other side. So my name is Moki Makura. I'm the executive director of Africa No Filter, which is a narrative change organization that's working to shift some of those harmful, stereotypical narratives that still persist about Africa today. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. I think narratives have become this very important area of inquiry for a lot of organizations, narrative power who holds the power to tell what stories about what people. How do you position yourselves? Obviously, you are challenging these reductive ideas about Africa and Africans, but how do you position yourself in this greater ecosystem of different organizations doing similar work? I think that's a great question because I think we are trying to position ourselves as enablers and supporters of other institutions, organizations, individuals who are also trying to do this. We are not the only ones, but I feel that we are one of the organizations that's actually got a mission to do this and we're funded to do this. So I see Africa No Filter's role as a supporter and an enabler and a community builder around this sort of mission of narrative change for Africa. So in order to do that, we've identified who we want in a community, which is pretty much storytellers, individuals and organizations and organizations that support storytellers. So it's a full ecosystem. That's the one pillar of what we do. The other pillar is that increasingly we're moving towards being much more of an advocacy organization just to create more awareness Mm. around narrative, really, and the importance and the impact of that narrative on the things we take for granted, like, you know, the impact of narrative on business in Africa, on investment in Africa, on trade policies, on development policies. There's a huge impact. And it's really trying to let people know that this is not just a soft, hey, let's get some storytellers to tell a couple of stories. There's real need for a change in narrative because there's real impact. So I guess that's where we see ourselves as advocates, but also as a builder of a community around this mission. Mm. And, and storytelling also just has a very broad array of ways of telling stories. And you as Africa No Filter are working across different uh, ways of telling stories, research, you know, podcasts, you sponsor different kinds of things, fellowships and organizations. Why is that important for you to to see storytelling in this broader frame? Because if you think about how 
anybody gets their ideas about a place, a person or or a thing, it's not from a single thing. It's not because you read one book or you listened to one piece of poetry or you watched one film. I think the very nature of narrative is that it comes from multiple sources, series of stories built up over time and reinforced over time. So, you know, when people think about, you know, Africa, it could be they saw a documentary. It could be that they watched a news story. It could be that they read a book that featured an African, or they listened to some poetry, or they went to a, you know an exhibition of artists, and there were some very dodgy pictures of of Africans in there. So there are multiple ways people build up an image or perception about a place, and that's exactly what a narrative is. It's sort of collection. It's, it's the end point of a collection of stories. And I call it, we, we use the phrase stories. And often some people say, oh, but I'm not a storyteller, I'm a visual artist. You are a storyteller in a way because you're telling a story. Your words, I mean, your picture is telling a story. So what we have done is that we've categorized in a way to make it easier for people to identify as a, you know, a storyteller in this narrative change space. We've categorized the people that we consider to be storytellers of influence. Because that's an important thing. We want storytellers who can influence people to 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 rethink Africa. So we have three categories of storytellers. One are storytellers in the media space, so that's journalists and media organizations. The second is storytellers in the social media space. So to a certain extent, they're content creators. Sometimes you can call them influencers, but they're using you know social media as a medium. So they, we call them content creators. And the third category, which is our, probably our broadest category, is storytellers in the arts and culture space. So that's everybody from a filmmaker to a film, to a visual artist, to a photographer, to a performance artist. We actually included fashion, which is a slightly separate category. And also we, we, we do support people who use food as mm. their platform to change narratives. Mm. So we've been quite broad, fashion and food, and as well as arts and culture, content creators and media. So I, I, I feel that it helps people understand that every creative output you have as a storyteller, regardless of what format it is or what medium it is, it plays a role or potentially can play a role in influencing how the world sees us as Africans. Right. And, and so you've made this really interesting you know, you've given these examples of how you go to a dodgy exhibition or an exhibition and you see, you know, a dodgy image or images of Africa. And this, you know, can happen on the continent, but largely also happens off the continent. I mean, people who are not, you know, on the continent have very warped ideas about mm-hmm. Africa. So I'm very interested to know about, you know, the the intersection between obviously working with content producers and storytellers on the continent, but then also working to get that content global. How are you marrying both of those mandates, if at all? Mm. So one of the big things that has changed very recently about Africa Filter is how we support this community. So communities are the center of what we do. We've realized over the last three years we've been doing this work is that we do give grants and grants are great. Grants are fantastic if you can get one, but money is limited. Yeah. And what we've realized that there kind of four key things that are so much more powerful than the financing. And one of them is amplifying. How do we amplify the work of that particular storyteller across our channels or towards individuals. And we know through data that actually many of the people that we funded 
have gone on to be funded and seen by other organizations when they weren't before. So we've kind of opened up a pipeline for other funding organizations. So amplifying their work is one way. Networking them with each other. In in November last year, we had an event in Nairobi, which was we brought 150 storytellers across our network together. And that was phenomenal because the big takeaway for everybody is that, oh, there are other people who kind of like care about what I care about and are doing similar work. And it was just a case of, you know, putting a photographer together in from Ghana in a room with somebody from, you know, Kenya and, mm-hmm. and sitting back and saying what can happen. And I think the big thing with anything that's Pan-African is that we don't see each other every yeah. day because we actually live in different countries. So any opportunity to convene and network people across the continent in one space, I think is critical. And we've seen that. So networking is a really important piece of what we do. Third thing we do is, is is connecting our community to market. I think probably this is the most important one because as one of our grantees said, it's like, yeah, great, thanks for the money, but that's not going to keep me sustained, right? I need a regular income or I need regular sort of projects. And that's what we try and do. So actually one of the highest we're making right now is actually a community sort of connections, sort of talent management type role at African Filter to say that how, you know, you're a filmmaker, how can we connect you to a Netflix or a Showmax you know, how can we build your networks using our networks as a sort of platform? So that's a big yeah. part. And the last part for me is building the skills of mm. this community. You know, a lot of the storytellers we work with and we find generally on the, on the continent tend to use, tend to self-educate, you know, meet a photographer. They've never taken a class, but they're amazing. You know, a lot of people have learned their skills from YouTube and that's one of the biggest free universities in Africa. And I think that if we want to play on a different level, we need to upskill. So we, we run something called ANF Academy and we try and sort of bring in great speakers, A, to inspire, but B, to pass on skills, just different way of thinking. So those, those for me are far more important in terms of sustaining that community, which is what we need beyond us. I mean, if African filter were to disappear in two years time, touch wood, it won't. What is a legacy? What is our legacy? It's not the few grants. It's actually how we've networked people, amplified them, connected them, built their skills. That would be the measure of our success. Right. And and you mentioned something really interesting as well about how the digital space, YouTube is this free university. And, and you know, similarly, I know so many people who've taught themselves so many skills just from watching videos online. Previously, before social media was really a big thing, we might have known a little bit about other places and contexts. And, you know, we might be able to go to conferences like the one that you convene of, you know, that that's a very select group of people that gets to attend. However, digital media seems to have really opened up Africans to know something about each other and to interact with each other in ways that might previously not have been possible. Would you say that that is a a, a place or an area that Africa No Filter tries to exploit or use to its advantage? I think you make an excellent point about the role of digital in sort of democratizing, opening up the world really to a certain extent. Mm. It's not a space that we try not to be practitioners because, you know, in a way the analogy I always use is that, you know, if we're sailing the ship and we're up, you know, we're down in the hold sort of, you know, putting the coal in the, in the fire, clearly I've never sailed the ship before. So I don't really know what happens, but the point is that if you're not up on the deck looking out for (laughs) But what could go wrong? You'll hit 
landmine. Do you have landmines in the ocean? I don't know. Terrible (laughs) analogy, absolutely terrible analogy. But the point is that we are enablers. We're supporters of of storytellers. So we don't do this ourselves because, you know, one organization trying to change a narrative about a continent, we could be here forever. But one thing I do want to add to, you know, I know your focus is around the digital world, but one of the things I think we as a continent need to connect us are more occasions. I mean, if you look at AFCON, for example, the African Cup of Nations, what that did to connect us. I remember last year when I think it was Ghana was knocked out by the Comores. It was like absolute horror because everyone's like, Comores, where's that? Who's that? People, we didn't even know there was a country right. called the Comores. Yes. You know, so we need things like that. And then the connection is digital. So you it it needs we need sort of real life events and and moments, and then it can be accentuated and amplified by digital. I don't think right. you're in digital sphere without some real life things to connect us. Right. I mean, that's, you know, I think as well, the, the 2010 World Cup, Ghana, that knockout, it's still something so clearly that sits with people. And that's kind of, you know, I think at the beginning of digital, but then, you know, it still sits with a lot of people because it was a collective experience of how people participated in this this grand spectacle on the African continent. And, and yeah, I wonder, the important word you've said is collective experience. I think that what I'm finding now is that, yes, we have the access that this digital world provides us with, but people are craving community. Mm. And it's not just digital community, it's real life community, real life experiences that you can share with other people. Mm. Mm. And now, I mean, just thinking a little bit about the the storytelling storytelling agency bird that you also run or manage, and and that's something that's also very different and interesting. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, great. So, bird is a it's a grantee of ours. So again, it's not us doing it. It, it actually was an idea of ours, but it's a grant to an organisation that's actually running it for us, and it's essentially it's a news agency, very much like AFP or Reuters. We have media clients. We actually have something like 140, 150 media clients who have all signed MOUs, so they're not just randomly going onto a site to to take our content and the content. Bird produces is very much what we call narrative changing stuff. So we have data stories that highlight African issues. So there's a virtual newsroom, yeah. And then we have contributions from, I think we have 60 or 80 journalists across Africa who provide stories. And the stories are really twofold. They're stories that are maybe profiles on people doing amazing things, right? You know, profile pieces. So we, you know, recently we did a series on climate just to show that, you know, Africans, we do know about climate too. We are actually doing something. We're not just waiting for the West to come and save us. So we'll do, you know, stories around people doing amazing things like that, but just more looking inward at, you know, which Africans are doing great things. So it's not this kind of constant doom and gloom. And the other thing is that, you know, we do data stories, we do profile stories, we do stories of progress. What we do, these are not necessarily good news stories because, and we don't necessarily just do positive stories because that some, somehow belittles the yep. work that we do as if, oh, these are just your nice soft stories. And, and some, somebody once said to me, you know, well, it's, we can't just do stories about, you know, cats and, and, you know, things like that. I said, but that's not what Bird is about. You know, it takes time to change narrative. And you don't do it by going to an extreme and saying everything's good because, you know, everything is not good in any country, anywhere in the world, right? So what we're doing is slowly telling a different story about Africa. We put out two stories a day. 
So that 10 stories a week that go out and they get picked up by, you know, up to 140 different media organizations. So that's one, you know, I feel game changing way to change the way the media see news because news often is defined as bad news. And we're trying to say there is news and it's progress news rather than good news. It's news that shows that we're actually making some headway. Right, right. And would you uh, call similar outlets like, you know, BBC's Focus on Africa, CNN's Voices of Africa, The Guardian used to run The Guardian Africa Network some years ago. Would you call those sort of predecessors to this kind of thing? Or would you say that those have a not so similar slant because they are Western-run platforms that are, you know, then talking about Africa, some would say in a in a specific sort of way? Oh, look, I think all of them are excellent. I mean, if you actually look at the BBC at one point, not so much anymore because they've sort of closed down a lot of the bureaus they had. But the BBC actually employed the most journalists in Africa at one point. So they were telling African stories and they were telling different African stories. And, you know, CNN, African Voices, all of these platforms that have gone into this space of let's change the way we report on Africa. Mm-hmm. My only issue with them is who's watching. This content is often made for an African audience to draw in an African audience. So for them, typically, it's not about, hey, let's change the the way the world sees Africa, because they're not showing that on CNN International and they're not showing that on BBC. The BBC you watch in London is not showing a lot of this content. That is for the African market. It's to draw in audience, right? Mm -hmm. So... The motiva- the motivation doesn't make it any less powerful. The point is that there are people telling alternative stories to us, but some of us are converted, right? I would love to know that somebody in the UK who's busy giving money to Oxfam to save a village because they think we're all poor gets to see the other side of Africa. The reality is they don't because mm. the sources of, of media they consume and what they have exposure to is very, very different to what we on the continent are seeing. Right. How, if at all, does Bird then sort of position itself, obviously to tell these stories for the continent, but then to to get them out to, you know, the, that benevolent funder or whoever it is who thinks, oh, you know, all, all Africans do is build, is need water, so, you know, we'll build wells, etc. Right. So, you know, I mean, it's an interesting question and one that we sort of grappled with because, you know, there's an African fr- um, proverb, there's an African proverb for everything. But, you know, it's like when you point a finger, there's three fingers pointing back at you. And that's what we realized, that we can't sort of just say, oh, it's CNN's fault, it's BBC's fault. They're the ones telling, you know, stories about us. Africa, no filter, actually did some research called How African Media Covers Africa. And we were horrified by what we found. And that's where Bird came from. We actually found that over, I think it was over 80% of the stories that Africans are reading about each other. So if I'm sitting in Ghana reading about South Africa, I'm reading negative news. I'm reading about, you know, bad stuff that's happened. So we are also guilty about the way we cover ourselves. Right. So that's one of the reasons, because actually the tagline for Bird at the time was content that connects the continent, right? So we're trying to say, hey, you in Ghana, you're not so different from you in, you know, Mali. Right. But what we found is that there was also the opportunity that can we get some of these stories onto international platforms? That's that's a work in progress. But I think Bird's mission was to change the psychology around news, mm. who are largely trained in this single kind of I don't know, the single way of thinking about journalism, you know, mm. if it, 
it leads, you know. So no good news makes it because if it's good news, it's PR, you need to pay for it. There's a philosophy that's grown up because these guys, you know, have learnt, you know, probably work for the BBC or international news has deemed this is how we do journalism. And we are pioneering a new way of thinking about storytelling because we know that stories are powerful. Stories can inspire, they can educate, they can do so much more than spread doom and gloom, which is actually what the fallout is, you know, right. for all storytelling. People are turning away from the news, hard news in their droves. Most right. young people don't yeah. <laughs> listen to your CNN, you know, they're mm. busy creating comedy skits online that, you know, if you look at what young people are watching, all of this is forcing people to go and find alternative positive news. And, mm. and let me stop here, but I just want to say one more thing that we have a grantee, he runs a platform called Habari and Jerry, which I think is Good News Africa in Swahili. And she she's a Tanzanian American and she started the platform purely because she was tired of all the negative stuff. And she knew that God, there must be more stuff than just bad news on Africa. She mm-hmm. had got sort of, I think she's got something like half a million followers, but she has posts that sort of deliver up to 5 million people, people views. And when I think about that, and I think at some of the circulation figures of some of our leading news outlets, these young content creators are much more influential. And that's mm. what we're watching them. So we also right. media outlets who take, you've got to be looking at the content because see what people are watching online and let that dictate what you think is news. Right, right. And, and, and that's, you know, I think what you said about the psychology of news or of the media in general, you know, I think about this example. This is about 10 years ago. One of our vice presidents at that time was gravely ill for a long time. And I always say he he died three times because, you know, the small little publications within the Zimbabwean ecosystem who are trying to break a story were constantly getting incorrect information and then, you know, running to posts. He's he's passed away. He's died. And so, you know, it, it became a thing where I think people wanted to trust these platforms. I mean, this happened again. There was a cricketer last year who was sick and then he did eventually pass on just like with the vice president. But then, you know, these small platforms put news out before it was actually true. And, you know, it sort of loses their credibility. And then people start to have this psychology that says, well, I can't trust, you know, even sometimes it was the mainstream media in this in this environment. So you say, well, wait to hear from it from the BBC. And I think that's right. a thing we still have a lot of that we're like, oh, OK, well, I'll, I'll wait to hear first from the BBC that this is real. How do we then work against that psychology, which is, you know, very colonial, very much about how we have seen ourselves represented and still sometimes see ourselves represented such that, you know, you might say, okay, there's this TikTok and, you know, the the news is usually legit, but then if it's a breaking story of this nature that's happening in that person's context, you would still say, I'm not going to talk about it until, you know, I, I see it on CNN. How do we work against that psychology? You know, I think it's a really important point you're making about, you know, what role sort of more traditional news outlets play. And the thing that CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera have is they have a certain amount of trust in their brand. And that's why I think for us as Africans, we need to build news brands. We need to build media brands. Because if you think about a brand, a brand is essentially about trust. You know, if a jeans brand, it's a makeup brand you trust. That whatever they say, they have, and that's why you're aligned to that brand. 
I don't think we have strong news brands because it takes a lot of money to build a brand. And media, it means that you've got trained journalists, you verify a story, you, you know, you you have journalistic ethics. And you know, content creators are not journalists. They're not mm. journalists. So you need to sort of determine what you go to a content creator for. You know, that content creator, if they're putting out news, then hopefully they'd have been trained because a lot of journalists are now sort of, you know, going online and putting out their own content. So I feel that you can have individual meet journalists who have got good reputations and brands. So you know that if I if this person posts it, they've checked and double checked. So it's not all all about these big global news brands. It really isn't. It's about trust. Who do you trust? And I, and you know, just as as a sort of final point, the media industry, because that's what we're talking about, is suffering right now. And it's being undermined by digital to a certain extent, all the traditional sources of revenue and all the the power that it had, as it was the chapter which you would know everything. Now, you, you know, brands can go directly, you know, social media, like I said, it's opened everything up. So I feel that we need to go back to understand why we have major news brands, their role in society. It's about accountability. It's about trust. It's about truth. It's about transparency. There's still a role for that. So we're not saying, no, don't do it. And I think that's what I think we're trying to do with Bird, that, you know, we're putting out our stories, but they're, they're, they're credible stories. None, this is not PR or whatever. So I think news organizations need to build brands so that people right. can content. And that happens over. Right. And, and we're talking as well about this shift with Gen Z and, you know, what they're consuming and how they consume information about the world. And, and you know, it's been proven. I think there have been studies in the U.S. that Gen Z uses TikTok as its Google search they don't they don't go to google like millennials and older generation mm-hmm. actually search for information and news on tiktok because that's to them where they find news and information mm-hmm. matters to them and it's you know there's really interesting dynamics around how different young people use these platforms to tell news you know the ukraine crisis last year africans in Ukraine, you know, how that they were telling the stories about what they were experiencing within this, you know, obviously the conversation wasn't about Africans in, in, in Ukraine. It was about, you know, white Ukrainians. And so they were now talking about their experiences. We saw it as well, Uganda, not Uganda, Nigeria with the elections last year. I think makeup artists were, you know, bringing in these really interesting ways to talk about you know, go and register to vote, but it starts as a makeup tutorial and then, you know, it starts talking about politics. Now, I think that we tend to think of Gen Z as fluff. A lot of people tend to think of Gen Z as, oh, you know, these, these this fluffy generation, but then they do find ways to talk about important things through these platforms that they're using. How then, you know, at, at the same time as strengthening media houses, and getting then Gen Z to engage with content and news and information and really be active in their own, you know, politics of the world or, or their countries. How do we or how can we use more of those platforms that we find them in to cultivate a kind of news and politics? I think it's happening. You know, when you say that, how can we use, you know, do more to cultivate this? I think trying to influence young people, I think, is always hard. Because I yeah. think, you know, just for generations, we, you know, we always rebel against the, <laughs> the generation before. So I don't think it's anything new. 
with this with this generation at all. But I feel that there are a lot of things happening right now in the world that is causing, I think, young people to feel much more like they have a voice. Mm. In, they are part of it because they can speak and be heard on social media in a way that my generation couldn't be heard. Yeah. So, you know, I, I tell you, what, what I do get frustrated about is when, you know, I've been at a couple of things where, you know, maybe forums and, you know, convenings where, you know, they're convened by the usual suspects. So it's the usual suspects and all the panels and it's, you know, the older generation. And there was one session where the young people, they had, you know, sort of day the, the next day and they really kind of took off. We're really saying that, you know, we're not in a voice, we're not in the room, you know, whatever. Why are you waiting for our generation to put you in the room? That's my thing. Why are you waiting for us to open the door for you? Open the door yourself, right? That's, so when I say that we want to influence young people, do it. If young people will, will organize themselves. They should be doing that. Every generation has, you know, like if you look at all the freedom fighters, they were young. They were young when they started doing this. This is the time when young people should be doing their own thing, not waiting for us. So I, I, I don't know. I just think about when you say like, how can we get young people? I'm like, no, they should be doing it. But do we listen to them? Do we give them the same credibility? I honestly think we do because let me tell you, when young people sufficiently mobilize, and you can mm. look at what with NSARS in Nigeria, I mean, it ended in disaster, but the yeah. process yeah. and how yeah. they did it and how yeah. they got engaged, where they got the attention of government and it happened, you know, it ended up in a really sad way. Yes, people listen. But I feel that like anything, if there's one voice shouting in the wilderness, doesn't matter how old you are, nobody's listening. It's about creating movements. And that's always been how things have happened. If you look at the ANC and you look at pictures of you know, Mandela, he was young. They mobilized. And I feel that right now, in a way, because of the digital world we live in, it's easy to mobilize. It's easier to mobilize. The spring, all of this was done online. When you say, are we listening? I think that phrase that, you know, if you, if you wait to ask permission, yeah. it, it, it doesn't help. Just ask for, what's the phrase, you know, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness afterwards. That's, you know, that's what I say. I think, you know, young people who are spending time knocking on the doors saying, hey, let us in. I think you're looking in the wrong direction. I have no more questions really to ask. I give it to you if you have anything that you feel that I haven't touched on that you want people to know about Africa, no filter and your work. Yeah. I mean, I think there's really just one thing about the fact that we're trying to build a community. You cannot change the way the world sees Africa by, you know, putting out one story. We literally need an army of people to do that. And all I would like to ask is that, you know, you may not be a pro-Africa person or a pro-Zim or pro-Nigeria because you're so pissed with your country or you're so pissed with the system. But it's like when you're at home and you're pissed with your mother, so I'm using a lot of bad language, but you don't go out and tell the world that. You don't go and say that my my, my mother is terrible. You know, I, I feel that there's a way we can talk publicly. There's a way we can post, where we can hold people accountable, where we can show that we have agency without sort of damning our entire society because it has implications. A lot of people, you know, in, in Nigeria, there's a movement called Jaffa where young people were, you know, fleeing and sort of literally turning down, you know, giving it up yours, you know, never coming back to Nigeria. Right. What are you saying to the people who, who stay behind? What 
what, what happens to them? You know, people think Nigeria is the most terrible place I had to flee. So anybody that wants to invest in there is thinking, well, people are leaving. It, it just has so many ramifications. And mm-hmm. it's like leaving a building and slamming the door or just leaving the building, shutting the door quietly and going on with your business. And I, I just feel that we should be accountable and responsible for the perception people have about us. We are the ambassadors for Africa. And that's what I ask people to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Just shut the door politely if you're leaving. That's it. I have a follow-up question on that. (laughs) Because I think, you know, it goes back to this disgruntlement that people have, that they tend to have, you know, when they've had an experience in their countries and, you know, then they're just like, you know, my country is a mess or whatever it is. And I see this a lot among Zimbabweans. I understand it. You know, I understand that the system that we're living in is very challenging and people are frustrated. People have left not because they wanted to leave. They've left because there's just no opportunities. There's no jobs. There's no stability. And so, you know, I, I also grapple with this because I've I've often thought, well, you know, who am I telling this story to if I go on a rant you know, on Twitter and I say, oh, you know, this has happened, this has happened. Because I'm not just talking to, we're not in our house, as you say, the metaphor of mother, your your problem with your mother, like, you know, what you you, you may, may not get along, but once you get out the house, you know, you, you put on the happy right. smile and you're like, right. oh, here we are. But then, you know, what, what should people then do? Because it's kind of this frustration that people have and they don't have outlets to talk to to other people or to communicate their frustration. So how do we temper that, that very real thing of, you know, I understand that you're frustrated and this might be your only outlet to talk about that. However, it has these implications because other people are reading what you're saying and building an impression about where you come from and who you are. I think that's what we sometimes forget is that even trash talking your own country is not just about you. It has an implication for how people perceive you as well. So I, I think there's two things and two ways to approach that. And, you know, I think it is real. I mean, Zimbabwe, for example, is going through and has been going through tough times. I, I'm married to Zimbabwean, so I know we have relatives in Zimbabwe, so I know it's hard. But when people say there's no opportunity, I don't believe that because there are people who are living in Zimbabwe. But my husband the other day showed me a picture of a boarding school. I won't mention which one. And it was like all the kids running. I was shocked to see there were still so many white people in Zimbabwe. I was like, I thought they'd all left because there was nothing happening. No, they're all there because they realize how good the education system is. So whilst everything is not good, because everything is not brilliant in America, go and see some of them in America. There is nowhere in the world where it's perfect. That's the first Grass is always greener on the other side, but there's issues everywhere else. So Zimbabwe is no different. Nigeria is no different. I think what is different in a lot of African African countries is the scale of the lack of opportunity. It's that so many people seem to be experiencing a lack of opportunity. But the point is, they are highlights, they're moments. Like Dangote is the richest man in Africa. Where did he make his money? In Africa. It is possible. And these things happen by being inspired to stay on and look for that opportunity. Right. That's mm-hmm. my first. second thing I think is really important is that if we as Africans don't create that change, who is going to do it? Right. If we want to get on the plane and jack back to Canada and put our, you know, all our intellect, our energy into building Canada, who is building Nigeria? Who's building Zimbabwe? Yeah. Even if we're not doing it for this generation, 
we're doing it for the next generation. And like I say, not everybody is a freedom fighter. Not everybody is, you know, some people just want to eat today. Mm. And, and I get that. I get that. That's why I'm saying close the door quietly because there's still people there who are going to stay there, who will remain there, who will need to bring their bill because they don't have an option to leave. Right. Close quietly. On that note, thank you very much, Moki, for your time. This has been a very enriching conversation. It's always enriching to speak to you and to feed off of your passion for the continent. Thank you. Thank you, Fungai. Thank you for all the work you're doing to actually give a platform to people to be able to share their thoughts. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you very much for listening. If you would like to learn a little bit more about Africa No Filter, please head to their Twitter account, which is Africa No Filter, or or as well, you can go to their website, which is www.africanofilter.org. And if you would like to share any thoughts or insights about this podcast episode, do feel free to send out a tweet at Native Podcast, or else you can always email at info at digitallynativepodcast.com, or else you can just tweet me personally at Fungai Just Being. All right. Catch you for the next podcast episode, which should be soon. And until then, please do take care and uh, be well, be safe.